Hey fools, welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Tuesday, May 24th, so today we'll be covering the consumer goods and retail sector. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and for newer listeners, this is my first week moving into the host seat, and I have a great discussion in store for you to kick things off proper. I'm joined today by Fool.com contributor Asit Sharma, who is Skyping in remotely from Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey Asit, uh, really excited to have you on the show. How are you doing? Hi Vince, likewise. I'm excited to be here. So um, this week, you know, we're trying to tie together each week of industry or each sector of industry focus to look at product life cycles. And uh, for example, Christine is going to be covering the life cycle of a prescription drug for the healthcare show tomorrow. Um, so for consumer goods today, I kind of wanted to cover something near and dear to my heart, or at least to my belly, a Chipotle burrito. What do you think about that? Sounds great. And very near and dear to my belly as well. So glad to have a fellow uh, Chipotle fan here. You know, even with some of the food, uh, I guess safety issues they've run into, uh, I've been happily enjoying some of the shorter lines in previous months, and I'm kind of rooting for the stock here. But uh, you know, we know that this is a company now about 23 years old, pioneer the fast casual restaurant movement. Uh, started, I think, when McDonald's first made their investment in 1996. It had about 15 or 16 locations. Now it's grown to over 2,000. Much of its success has stemmed from its focus on fresh quality ingredients. And the company's mission statement actually reads, Food with integrity is our commitment to finding the very best ingredients raised with respect for the animals, the environment, and the farmers. So if we're looking at you know the life cycle here of you know the Chipotle burrito going from the farm to our table, it's exactly some of those animals and farmers that I think we're going to be discussing today, looking at these ingredients. So let's dive right into it. What do you think, Asit? Yeah, sure. Well, let's talk about that mission statement for uh, just a second. Chipotle often shortens that mission statement on its website. Uh, you come across any promotional materials, because it's, it's a mouthful, but they shorten it to food with integrity. And that is an awesome mission statement when you just condense it down. It's, it's concise, uh, it's evocative, uh, it makes you believe or want to believe in the product. But there's this other thing going on too, and that's actually a business model. It's got this marketing pull and it's got a certain cost structure underneath it. So when you communicate to the customer, this is food with integrity, you're differentiating yourself from the quick service restaurants, the McDonald's and Wendy's of the world. So you're setting a very high bar to begin with. And what we've seen with Chipotle is that that business models worked so well for them for so many years because there weren't many incremental costs uh, associated with that model. They went about their business uh, sourced with great suppliers, had a great product, but didn't have to come to terms with any kind of food scares that we've seen recently. So this is the first instance that we're seeing Chipotle is having to pay whatever it takes to make that one word in the mission statement, integrity, come true for its customers. Uh, So yeah, so diving from there into uh, the supply chain, what's really interesting when you walk into your local Chipotle, you see at Vince, I know we talked about this recently. You see the ingredients and you want to think they're very local, very close to you. I'm sure this is uh, your take, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So mine too. I, I'm, I'm also a fan of Chipotle's, a fan of the stock, a fan of the uh, food. But the, the reality is that your burrito or your burrito bowl has a variety of far-flung ingredients uh, coming with it. So 
your pork may be coming from England because Chipotle had a uh, few food scares uh, and, and before that had issues with hormones, they've really reached out and, and branched overseas to some suppliers. So they have two. One is called Caro. The other is Tulip. And these suppliers send carnitas, that is pork, over the ocean uh, to Chipotle because Chipotle ran into some issues with hormones in the pork here domestically. That doesn't mean that they don't have domestic suppliers. It's just they're, they're branching out. So your pork and your burrito bowl might come from overseas. Uh, the avocados come from California for the most part. Uh, one of Chipotle's big tortilla suppliers is called Don Poncho, and they're based in Oregon. And you might think, well, hey, I, I happen to know that there's this farm close by that supplies uh, lettuce to Chipotle. And again, this is very interesting. Before that lettuce gets to you, because of the uh, novavirus scares, the E. coli scares, that lettuce is now being shipped to a central kitchen, which may be hundreds of miles away, where it's prepped and then sent back to be distributed to the restaurants. So this burrito bowl ought to come with its own passport. It's a really cosmopolitan batch of ingredients that's traveling hundreds and in some case thousands of miles to get to the line where you, you pick up that order. Okay, okay. So, uh, doubling back a little bit, uh, you mentioned the carnitas, for example, coming from those two UK suppliers. Funny enough, uh, Sarah Priestley, who joined uh, me in the editorial bureau, editorial bureau recently on the TechCon team, uh, she's heard of Tulip. Uh, they're a major, uh, you know, meat, uh, pork, and beef supplier in that region. She's heard of them. Uh, quite famous uh, in her home country and. Uh, from my understanding, you know some of that. This was also tied when Chipotle connected with these suppliers, uh, you know, across the Atlantic, to the shortage that happened in early 2015. So, you know, part of the company's efforts, uh, especially around animal welfare, they send auditors out to their suppliers to make sure that uh, they're essentially adhering to the, the policies that the companies put in place. Uh, they found some issues with those standards, like as you mentioned, with the hormones as well. And when they cut those ties, they lost supply to about one third of their restaurants, and uh, you can see, you know, how I, I feel committed the company is uh, I, to their mission statement. In this case, you know, they're willing to go that far with the added cost, of course, of bringing uh, those ingredients uh, across an ocean to to resupply. I think a lot of the Cara foods or even the tulip went to, for example, like locations in Florida to kind of bolster their canita supply there. Yeah, well, you know, this is a case of whammy and double whammy because a company like Chipotle can take a whammy. And what I mean by that is it worked for Chipotle to get out in front of that shortage and to post signs in their restaurants saying, hey, we've, we've got a carnitas shortage. Uh, and so you may not see the carnitas for a while. And customers really responded to that. Instead of going away and, and going to a competitor, they were willing to wait. It reinforced the image that we have of Chipotle as, as being interested in sustainability, interested in socially conscious food, and willing to stand by those values. But then the double whammy came in late 2015, where suddenly the costs to procure and uh, prep food to make it safe really increased. That became a double whammy. So it incurred costs in the first wave. That worked out for them. They were actually able to raise beef prices uh, in 2015 to raise pork prices. So what then ensued was an unexpected wave of safety violations of people getting sick, bad publicity. 
And now the company posted, uh, as many of our listeners know, a $26 million loss in the first quarter uh, of this year. So if Chipotle is going to uh, really appeal to its core customer, it's going to have to spend more millions, and it's willing to do that. We've, We've seen that despite everything, the company is still enforcing those small suppliers to incur more cost. And as you and I were chatting about, Vince, they have this $10 million uh, program to help defray some of those costs for the smaller suppliers. Yes. So that uh, $10 million, uh, if I recall, it was uh, the Local Grower Support Initiative. So. Uh, you know that's money. It seems that the company understands basically that. Well, keeping in mind that actually for their produce, I think in 2015 about 10 or 12 percent of their produce was was actually considered locally sourced. So still just a smaller portion, uh, a pretty small portion, uh, you know, of the ingredients that they bring into the restaurant. But even then, you know, at their scale and size, it makes it really hard for some of these smaller growers to adhere to the very strict new safety standards that they've set uh, after the the scandal outbreaks uh, last year. And with those added costs, with things like uh, with with the DNA testing and uh, testing before the uh, crops could even be harvested, uh, so basically, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about you know the ten million dollars, maybe a little bit how they're spending it, about education, the assistance, and things along those lines? Yeah. So uh, you mentioned the testing in the field, and that's something that's important uh, for these small suppliers because now. Um, they have this process of high-resolution testing, and it sounds really fancy. It sounds like you're taking some kind of high, sophisticated instruments and going into the field. But what high-resolution really means is that if you've got a sample size of stuff you're testing in the field of, of, of small farmers' crops, you're going to test more of a small sample. Uh, so whatever the sample size is, you're going to test more of it. And I sometimes wonder, is there any product left? after you've put high resolution testing through a small supplier. But that's exactly what that is. And that's labor intensive actually. For if you think of a small farmer who wants to grow into a mid-sized farm, the opportunity to do business with Chipotle is, is awesome. But if you've got these unexpected labor costs where you're paying somebody to physically go out and not just someone who's maybe uh, not related to the food industry, but a person with qualifications, or maybe an internal person that you've had to train, that's a high cost. Just consider the margins on a, a crop like Chilantra. They're not very high. It's a business where you scale up. You, you try to sell more and more each year, and you're making on volume. So this is like a, a, something of a setback to any small supplier who wants to conduct business with Chipotle. And so these programs should help in making the testing more efficient, I think they're setting aside actually some money to to defray some of the costs of people people being in the field to uh, test these ingredients. Okay, so uh, before I wanted to dive into a little bit more of the safety initiative specifically and how it's kind of changing, you know, we talked about some of the ingredients, uh, where they're coming from, and then also how the preparation process is changing in the restaurant and also at these kind of central uh, preparation centers. Uh, the thing is, Chipotle actually has kept their supplier uh, list really pretty 
close to the chest. And so a few other names just to keep in mind that we discovered uh, during our research is another one's called Neiman Ranch. So they're a source of beef and pork, and they kind of network from hundreds of independent farmers. And as as, as of last year, they were actually the largest pork supplier to Chipotle. And for example, during that carnitas shortage where the company decided to cease uh, taking pork from one of their vendors that they found was not adhering to their animal welfare standards. You know, Neiman Ranch tried to step in, but they could only do so much on short notice. And interestingly enough, actually, towards the end of last year in September, Purdue Farms actually bought out Neiman Ranch, and there was quite a bit of controversy among Chipotle fans and fans of uh, Neiman Ranch themselves. Uh, basically saying, oh, this is going to change everything. Purdue takes much more of a, a large-scale uh, approach to, to, to growing food and that they're not going to be as concerned with you know, animal welfare. But it seems like, uh, I think, all parties involved are, are interested in maintaining that relationship and the reputation that uh, the ranch has developed over the years. And then also, uh, a few other ones that we discovered were OSI Group, uh, Edminia, and Golden State Foods. So, these are also like commissaries that help with the food preparation. So I think the pork and beef is braised by OSI Minia, according to Bloomberg. And then Ready Foods uh, also cooks some of their beans, makes red and green salsas. Is there anything uh, that you found out about these uh, these suppliers as well? Yeah, sure. So um, Neiman Ranch is extremely well respected in the food industry, and they sort of grew up with Whole Foods. They have or, or hold Whole Foods highest supplier rating and they've scaled up with that company. So it's a natural fit for a Chipotle to do business with them. And uh, we know that Golden State supplies to some very large companies, even in the, the fast food industry, uh, such as McDonald's. So these are well-known large suppliers. And even though Neiman was bought out by Purdue, my thought is that they probably will be able to keep their practices, and Purdue understands that revenue stream has a certain buyer, so they're not going to mess with it too much. But uh, I'd like to move on to actually talking about how this food is prepped in these central kitchens and some of the techniques that have changed for Chipotle. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, when you think about the tomatoes that go into your burrito uh, and, and some other of these vegetables, they're actually now, the vegetables are blanched. And if you don't know what blanching is, it's basically dropping the vegetables into boiling water for two to three seconds. And you might think that this kills the taste. If you were to take that same tomato and taste it, yeah, maybe you would see the difference. But what executives at Chipotle said when they came up with this is, hey, I challenge you to taste the difference in a burrito when everything else is in there, including the cheese and the sour cream, whatever else you have. And, and I tried that. I went to Chipotle. And I said, I know I'm going to be able to taste the difference because I'm a serious fan. I consider myself a borderline foodie. I don't have immense food knowledge, but I'm going to be able to taste the difference. I went, I ate the burrito, and I could not tell the difference uh, on that side. But uh, some of the other procedures that they're using, you can tell a little bit of a difference. Uh, one is definitely for the positive. So with the chicken, uh, Chipotle used to marinate their chicken through the day, and now they only do it at night. And anyone who's ever cooked at home, unwrapped uh, a bit of chicken, you see the warnings on the food labels, don't let this chicken get all over your counter. You've got to handle this stuff very carefully. So what they do now is they marinate the chicken overnight, so there's very little chance of contamination of surfaces and other uh, food items. And I think that's actually improved the taste of the chickens, because in some cases, it results in a longer marinade process. 
But the beat is a whole different story. And bear with me here. I'm going to go into a little bit of detail. And you foodies out there, perk up your ears because you, you probably are familiar with this technique. If you remember when Chipotle first came around, for me and Vince, you mentioned this uh, when we were talking, for you as well, seeing how they used to throw the raw beef onto their grill and sear that on a commercial oven, a gas oven, that was pretty exciting and new. And then they would slice it up and it had a very classic American seared on the outside, medium texture on the inside, and it was delicious. So along comes this food scare and now what Chipotle is doing is preparing the beef sous vide. And what that means is it's a vacuum process. So basically they take their beef and put it in plastic bags, vacuumed, and they put this into a water bath, a warm water bath, and they let it sit there for hours. This is a really slow way to cook the meat. And what it does, is it breaks down the collagens in the connective tissue and it increases the succulence of the meat. So basically you should be getting what's an even tastier product. Now there's a slight catch there, which is when you walk into a Chipotle, you really don't see that beautiful seared beef any longer. You see something that looks appetizing, but it's brownish. And our brains are hardwired so that our senses combine. We need to see what we're eating. We need to smell it. We need to feel the texture on our tongue. And if something's different, our brains tell us this isn't quite the same and maybe it's not quite as good. So you may think, well, how important is that? Well, it's so important that on Chipotle's most recent conference call, the analysts were asking about this sous vide preparation technique. And they were saying, hey, how are customers reacting to this? Because if you and I don't take to that beef any longer, guess what's gonna happen to one of Chipotle's most popular meats and to their sales in general? So Monty Moran, uh, co-CEO, was very careful to say, hey, at first customers didn't seem to be taken to this, but now their satisfaction is improving. And I think by and large that's true. When you and try this at home, next time you go to Chipotle and order a steak burrito. Try the taste. It's different, but it's not bad. It's actually juicy meat, and I think it, it passes mustard. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I did notice that, and that honestly, I have to say, uh, you know, Chipotle's beef was what originally pulled me away from Cadoba. I, I loved the way they grilled it right then and there. I, I loved grilling out and seeing, uh, you know, those grill marks on it even. It, it it was just I felt like another level in terms of the quality and, and really won me over uh, to and made me a regular at Chipotle restaurants. So it seems like the company is just trying to fi- strike a balance here of finding the preparation techniques that they're launching at these restaurants to avoid these food safety issues and at the same time work with their you know supply chain but also the preparation process overall and keep customers satisfied and especially at a very pivotal sensitive time when i think they are under this very uh, extra scrutiny essentially due to the to the issues they ran into uh, recently yeah and i think there's a big picture takeaway here and kudos to chipotle because they're spending the money they are working very hard to change their processes. And what looks like a lot of stumbling and fumbling today and just trying to react, if you look carefully, they're putting in new procedures for the long term. And let's go back to this idea of food with integrity. What they're doing is creating a new way. They understand that that original vision isn't going to work. It's just not possible. So they're recreating food with integrity 
And they're building a model that other restaurants that are interested in the same type of business model can follow in the future. It looks different, but at the end of the day, if you can promise food safety and get close to what Chipotle had before, you've got a sustainable business. And for, for me, that's something essential that ties back to the stock, its valuation, Chipotle's future comps, their comparable sales, and the ability of this company to bounce back. I think by investing this time and this effort with suppliers, with procedures, spending these millions of dollars, they're building themselves to be that long-term company that they always purported to be. And so personally, I think that's what they need to do. Just avoiding the issue and slapping some marketing on this would have been the utmost wrong move, totally wrong move, but they avoided that. Uh, they're acting with integrity, in my opinion. Okay, okay. And uh, I guess going off of the that long-term view that you mentioned, you know, it's just something that struck me as well. Was the idea, you know, last week we talked a little bit about inventory, how companies try and minimize uh, the the time that they hold inventory on hand, convert that into you know cash and revenue as quickly as possible, so they can invest it into into other projects with with and, and get better returns. But the uh, process here that with a lot of these uh, new safety initiatives, it seems like there's some added handoffs. Uh, for their in for their inventory, essentially their ingredients for their burritos and their other uh, menu offerings. And how much do you feel like that is potentially adding or uh, to longer term costs and affecting their margins? Or do you think that this is something where longer term they need to get people back in their restaurants to to stay loyal to that mission, and then the rest will kind of sort itself out? Well. Chipotle's always been very good at handling food costs, and they used to be good at handling labor costs. I'm, I'm ribbing them a little bit. They still are very good at handling labor costs. The problem is that now you have a fully staffed restaurant that's waiting for customers to come in. So when you look at Chipotle's restaurant margins, that's the direct cost that they incur, the biggest portion of that is the labor cost. The food cost has suffered as well, so we are seeing that inventory moving a little more slowly because, it, number one, it's waiting for customers to come in and take it away. Uh, but number two, there are these handoffs that you mentioned. And if you picture a funnel, of inventory as a funnel, anytime you have a bottleneck, you're building costs in your system. So these food kitchens, if, if you look at it as um, sort of a finance thing or an accounting thing, these food preps, multiple food preps, the, the central kitchens, they represent bottlenecks in Chipotle's system. And Chipotle is trying to move those as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. But at the end of the day, what they need is for that throughput to return, is for the lines going out the door, and for them to be focused on how fast we move a customer. Once they come in uh, through our door, move them through the line, get them paid, and, and let them get on with their day. Uh, that's something that will take care of itself. If, if they could just get back to that, the inventory will move, but it's not a huge issue for them because they're, as I said, they're pretty good at handling the inventory. They can allow some of that to build on their balance sheet. Uh, won't be too much of an issue. Now, there's a caveat here, and that's if, which every stockholder fears, uh, if there's another food scare, that will hurt them in terms of inventory because their food waste will skyrocket in that instance. Whenever you have an instant like this, forget about what's called shrinkage, which is minimal food waste. They'll have a lot of food waste because they'll have to go back to the drawing board. 
That will be terrible for their inventory balance on their balance sheet. Uh, I think they're behind that, but you never know. And that's the risk in holding the stock. We still won't know until time passes that there's not one more scare in 2016. Those prospects are diminishing, but they're still there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, for any uh, for any restaurant at the at this scale, uh, any of the companies out there, even for the larger ones that don't run into some of the same risks where they do more central processing for the ingredients. Think of the traditional fast food companies. You know, they still have their scandals, and so overall, I think I'm with you in that uh, the company's focused in the right on the right place here. And uh, overall, you know, I'm I'm definitely rooting for them, and and will be continue to be a regular at Chipotle. Yeah, as as will I. I'll continue to patronize them. I feel safe eating the food. Uh, I think it tastes pretty good still. So I'm I'm going to be going back for sure. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Asit. Uh, we have to wrap up this episode, uh, but Lifecycle Week continues tomorrow as Christine covers uh, the journey of a prescription drug, as I mentioned, for healthcare. Sean will cover the origins of a barrel of oil on Thursday's Energy Industrial Show. And Dylan will be looking at how the iPhone goes from individual components to everyday companion for tech on Friday. So thanks again, Asit. It was awesome having you on here. Thanks, Vince. It was a lot of fun. And of course, we're always happy to keep the discussion going. Encourage you to hit us up on Twitter at MF Industry Focus or shoot us an email with any questions or comments to industryfocus at fool.com. You can also discover other podcasts from Motley Fool by checking out www.fool.com slash podcast. And as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening and Fool on. <laughs> <laughs>